Welcome to the New Books Network. One of the earliest Christian confessions that Jesus is Messiah and Lord has long been recognized throughout the New Testament. Joshua Jip shows that the New Testament is, in fact, built upon this foundational messianic claim, and each of its primary compositions is a unique, creative expansion of this common thread. Having made the same argument about the Pauline epistles in his previous book, Christ is King, Paul's Royal Ideology, Jip works methodologically through the New Testament to show how the authors proclaim Jesus as the incarnate, crucified, and enthroned Messiah of God. In the second section of this book, Jip moves beyond exegesis toward larger theological questions such as those of Christology, soteriology, ecclesiology, and eschatology, revealing the practical value of reading the Bible with an eye to its messianic vision. The messianic theology of the New Testament functions as an excellent introductory text honoring the vigorous pluralism of the New Testament books while still addressing the obvious question, what makes these 27 different compositions one unified testament? Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Josh Jipp about his new book, The Messianic Theology of the New Testament. Dr. Jip is Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. His previous books include Christ is King and Saved by Faith and Hospitality, which won the Academy of Parish Clergy's Book of the Year Award in 2018. Dr. Jip, welcome to the show. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I'm excited for today. I, I wonder if you could begin this interview just by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies. Yeah, well, I uh, I guess you could trace the origins to my interest in biblical studies to my probably early high school years when I started to read the scriptures on my own um, somewhat seriously and just got really intrigued um, with the arguments that the authors made and the different uh, the different kinds of metaphors and languages language that was used in the poets and the prophets and just it actually raised so many different questions for me so that as I, as a, you know, was trying to be a faithful Christian and learn about God and so forth, really for me, there were a lot of intellectual light bulbs that started to flash in terms of me uh, uh, just learning, but then also having all kinds of questions I wanted to, uh, wanted answers to. So that really started me off on a trajectory uh, where um, I wanted to receive more theological education. I ended up going to TEDS. I'm fast forwarding here about 10 years later. Uh, went to TEDS where I did my MDiv and uh, learned uh, Greek and Hebrew um, uh, and also just felt uh, as though the languages were really um, impactful and powerful and opening new uh, uh, new doors for me to, to walk through in terms of my education and loved it. And then I loved the opportunity I had to teach. And so it was, it all kind of started, uh, from my love of the scriptures in high school and the way in which that, uh, really just set me off on a quest to continue to, to learn and think and grow and pay attention to the, uh, the mind that God gave me. So. Right. Absolutely. And we definitely see a lot of fruit of that in the way that you then express that through this book, The Messianic Theology of the New Testament. 
Um, so this is uh, New Testament theology, and usually New Testament theologies are, are tasked with identifying unity and diversity among the New Testament writings. So what's the foundational like starting place for this work? What do you identify as the New Testament's unity and diversity? Yeah, I you know the the book is probably best thought of in the first instance as a book about Jesus as the Messiah. And that that was, you know, as you, as you read the 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 blurb on the back cover, you know, it really did start uh as an extension of my argument um in Christ as King, a book that I wrote on Paul. And as I was arguing there that basically the confession Jesus is the Christ or better Jesus is the Messiah, God's anointed one, draws together a whole bunch of threads in Paul's argumentation. I was also seeing this is actually in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you know, so on and so forth, and all of really the major writings of the New Testament. And it was then, it, it was from there then that I started to say, you know, I think it would be interesting to approach this question that's often raised by New Testament theology, the unity and diversity. Why, right? We have 20 different, seven different texts in our New Testament canon. We have actually four gospels. We have different Pauline epistles, which are clearly saying similar things, but different things. We have the grab bag, you know, of the Catholic epistles or general epistles. We have, you know, and, and there's, there's clear differences. And yet all of them are agreed in terms of speaking of Jesus as God's anointed, speaking of him as the Messiah. And so I thought it would be interesting to try to approach why what binds these texts together through the um, uh, through the task of uh, what I think is their uh, uh, agreed standard early confession that Jesus is the Messiah, and not just that they agree. Yeah, that's the confession. Let's move on to bigger, better, more interesting things. But that actually a lot of the arguments of our major texts in the New Testament are engaging in interesting uh, and creative expansions upon that confession. So to give, you know, just to give an example or two, um, in uh, the, uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, the sequel, Jesus is not just uh, a Messiah. We can, you know, if God faithful to the promises he made to Israel, we can move on. The author then moves from that claim to show how he's actually the crucified, resurrected, and now enthroned at God's right hand, Davidic king, who establishes God's kingdom, who pours forth the spirit, who uh, vindicates his witnesses from heaven. In other words, who's basically continuing in his messianic task. And it's something that's really foundational for the, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So I guess, you know, that to answer your argument, the unity that I'm seeing here is Jesus is the Messiah throughout all of the texts expanded upon in interesting, surprising, and creative ways. And that's also really the diversity. Uh, Matthew does it in a way that's different than John. Luke does it in a way that's different from Mark. And Paul's epistles do it in a way that's different from Hebrews. But all of them are essentially agreed that this is a critical way to understand Jesus' identity. Right. So in kind of identifying that, that it is a critical way to see Jesus' identity, how did you approach the New Testament texts and look for how the New Testament authors are engaging in messianic discourse. Like what clues kind of served as your guide as you went through this work? 
Yeah, there's there, there's pretty much three, I would say. The, the, the first one would be I'm looking for things like messianic titles or honorifics. So certainly a big one here is Christos. And I think for all of the New Testament texts, Christos does mean not just it's not just another name for Jesus, um, but it really does mean the Messiah, the Lord's Yahweh's anointed in the Old Testament that's spoken of. Uh, in different texts, 1 Samuel, Psalm 2, um, uh, different oracles in uh, prophetic oracles in Isaiah. Um, so I'm looking to see, do the texts actually draw upon messianic titles to refer to Jesus? Uh, Son of God would be another important one. Um, and then secondly, I'm looking also to, are they uh, invoking or drawing upon um Israel's scriptures that were messi- that that are also messianic. So, you know, whether this is Ezekiel 34 and God's promise that he is going to rule his people with a good Davidic shepherd who will seek and save the lost, who will procure justice and righteousness and salvation for his people. Or whether this is the prophetic oracle of Isaiah 11 where the spirit of the Lord is marking the Davidic agent who uh, procures justice by the very words of his mouth, or whether it's Second Samuel seven, I won't list you know all all of them here, but there's a whole host of these important texts in the Old Testament that the New Testament authors then draw upon and invoke, um, perhaps foremost of which are many of the Psalms. And then the third one I would say would be I'm also attuned to. Are there recognizable um, motifs, messianic scenarios, or tropes that the author might be engaging uh, engaging in? So, if is the Messiah related in some way to the building of the temple? Is the Messiah portrayed as executing his task as a good shepherd? Does the Messiah uh, do things like establish his people with justice and? righteousness. These are some different kinds. Is, is, the messi- is the Messiah engaging in, maybe as he does in the book of Revelation, actually sort of a surprising um, counter-cultural type of military war, messianic battle? Um, if, so those are really the three ways uh, to, you know, to speak quickly that I'm going about looking for ways in which the author is engaging in messianic discourse. Number one, titles. Number two, uh, messianic scriptures of Israel that are being invoked, and number three, uh, scenarios, tropes that uh, resonate with messianism and kingship literature. Yes, yeah. Well, that is that's very helpful. So then let's dive into the contents of this book. So how, how did you, um, as you went through the Gospels, how did you see the Gospel authors um, demonstrate that they are interested in describing Jesus in messianic terms. Yeah. Well, they each do it. They each do it in their in a different way, you know, which is different. And yet there's obvious similarities, which again is getting it, you know, sort of the, the diversity and unity question. So, uh, you know, for example, um, one of the ways uh, that Matthew will do it Matthew starts with his genealogy and everything is sort of leading up to the claim that he makes in Matthew 1, 16 and 17, uh, that Jesus is the, 
uh, is the Christos, the one who is the, uh, you know, promised son of David. And uh, the genealogy is essentially telling this story, basically, of election, God's election of Abraham, uh, kingship, uh, the monarchy with King David, Solomon, and his descendants, and then tragically the exile, uh, uh, the Babylonian deportation. And the Messiah then is portrayed in verse 16 and 17, Jesus, the one who is called the Messiah, right? That all of history for the author of Matthew is building up to and leading up to. And so then in Matthew's infancy narrative, he sets forth Jesus within the context of not only as described as one who is the Christos, but within Israel's scriptures. And if you just sort of look at the texts that Matthew draws upon, he's the Isaiah 7 um, Emmanuel, God with us, which in that context is God's sign of faithfulness to the house of David. Uh, He's the Micah 5 good shepherd who comes from Bethlehem to rule over uh, his people, Judea. And you can just kind of keep, he's the son of God that Hosea 11, 1 promised out of Egypt, I called my son. And so the te- the author is basically saying, these aren't random haphazard, you know, texts from the old Testament. He's just saying, uh, and it looks like he fulfilled this and maybe this and maybe this, right. But actually strategically, the author is showing how the life and history of Jesus corresponds to and fulfills some of these Davidic messianic expectations that the scriptures set in motion. And I'll just add too, I mean, I'm still on the infancy narrative. I don't know how long I have to go on one question here, Jonathan, but you know, there's also the clash between the two different kingdoms that you get between King Jesus in uh, chapter two, uh, one through 13 or so. And the other person who's referred to as Basilus here, Herod. And so you get this clash of two different types of kings, one who's a child, right? One who is God's promised Davidic Messiah, and one who is marked by anger and paranoia and deception as a means to manipulate people to worship him. Uh, And that will set in motion to some extent the two different kinds of kingdoms that will be operating through the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of God being worked out through the kingdom of the Messiah and the kingdom of Herod that will be a representative of the kingdoms of the world that will critique and oppose uh, and set its face actually against uh, against the Messiah. I guess I, I know I know this you know question I could go on with for a long time. I'll just I'll just add one thing for now, even though you know we could take longer with this. But Matthew, along with actually the other four Gospels, also uh, will apply Davidic Messianic texts to Jesus to explain his sufferings. There's a really fascinating parallel between uh, that really starts in Matthew 26, uh, parallels um, between the life of David and the revolts and rebellions that he encountered and experienced in his own family and the trials that he went through, and then the same sufferings and experiences that Jesus himself goes through. Really interesting Davidic typology that the author is making here, and centering in many ways upon the righteousness, but also suffering that the Messiah, the Davidic Messiah experiences, even at the hands of his own friends, people like Judas and Peter and so forth. And this then really climaxes to some extent in the passion narrative where, uh, you know, the um, 
uh, Jesus is, you know, uh, speaking and giving voice to the Psalms of lament, the Psalms of the righteous sufferer from the cross, such as Psalm 22, my God, my God, why is, why have you forsaken me? And so forth. So that when you are reading the passion narrative, it's, uh, and seeing these Psalms actually come out of the mouth of Jesus, it's, it's hard not to see that and not draw the conclusion that this is the fulfillment of the, uh, the 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 righteous Davidic king that the Psalms portrayed. So um, I've got probably 150 pages on the Gospels, Jonathan. I'm just giving you a little taste here, and probably going too long the way it is. No, I appreciate it. <laughs> no, that's that's very helpful to know that that's that's where the uh, the gospel authors are coming from, and that's part of their goal and intention. So. Now let's see if we can cover even more in one question. <laughs> okay. no, let's see what happens. No, right. um, in the Pauline corpus, then um, what what kind of ways do you see maybe what the Gospels are presenting in terms of Jesus's messianic identity? Like what elements are seen that are similar, or or how does Paul then um, present Jesus's identity and also, if you if you wouldn't mind kind of saying something on chapter six and seven, which um, really just cover like how Paul is concerned with soteriology and how Jesus's messianic identity plays into how believers are to view themselves. So mm-hmm. take your time. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> what, what do you think? Sure. sure. Yeah, well, I, I guess I'd say some of the similarities you would see in and this is really a similarity that goes across the New Testament, but I'll just stay with Paul and the Gospels for now, one of the similarities you see is that Paul also is interpreting um, Jesus' Davidic descent as a sign of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel. Whether this is in Romans 1, uh, 1 through 5, where Paul says the gospel of God, and then he says, you know, it was promised in the scriptures of Israel, and in verse 3, he says it's about a son who was born according to the house of David. You know, he's a descendant of David according to the flesh. This is something that God had always promised, um, you know, back into 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 and so forth, that God would rule over his people through a righteous son from the house of Israel. Paul shares that. I mean, you can see Romans 9, uh, 4 through 5 as as uh, also um, uh, articulating that truth. There's similarities between the Gospels and Paul in terms of they both agree that basically one of the most important frames or contexts for understanding the person of Jesus is the Psalter. So uh, Paul, um, throughout his letters, whether it's Romans 15, uh, uh, he's applying the Psalms as well to Jesus in terms of saying, uh, you know, just as uh, the Messiah, um, what is this, Psalm 69, I'm trying to remember how it goes, uh, experience the revilings of those reviling you, the Messiah is actually praying this, speaking this to the Father, right? This then functions basically as an exemplar for the Messianic community uh, to also uh, um, basically show neighbor love and even love for those who disagree uh, with them. Uh, you see it, the same Psalms being applied to Jesus, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 110, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28, to basically articulate the crucifixion and then especially the resurrection and heavenly enthronement 
uh, of the Messiah. Uh, so they, they agree uh, uh, in, a, in a wide variety of ways, even though, you know, Paul is giving to us um, very propositional um, letters that are directed to the needs and situations of a particular community. And the Gospels are essentially narratives and stories. One still finds some of these similarities. But to get to your second question, and here's where I would say we actually see uh, another like really foundational um, and important similarity is that uh, even though they do it in different ways, and you had asked uh, the question uh, uh, related to soteriology, one of the ways Paul often conceptualizes salvation is by, I would argue, by sharing in the life the identity, and even the reign of the Messianic King Jesus. So the actual life and events, the story of Jesus, which are Messianic to their core, centering upon his Jesus' incarnation, his sufferings, his, uh, his death, his resurrection and enthronement, Paul then, I mean, those are basically set out, for example, for us in Romans 1, 1 through 5. And Paul says, this is the gospel of God. The gospel of God centers upon, right, God's faithfulness to Israel to send a Messiah who then lives his life this way. Again, uh, incarnation, cross, resurrection, enthronement, and ascension. But then those events become something that we as believers share in and participate in. And Paul then expands this reality out for us in Romans uh, chapters five through eight, for example. Um, maybe even for like, maybe even helpful to some of your listeners if I do it with sort of a shorter text. But Ephesians starts in, in chapter 1, 20 through 23, and basically is speaking of how God has shown his great love and wisdom uh, uh, and how it's been revealed now. This power has been revealed in raising Jesus from the dead, exalting him at God's right hand, giving him new life above every power and authority. Well, then the next thing Paul does is he says, and so you, when you were dead, like Christ was dead, God took you and gave you life and co-enthroned you with the Messiah and seated you at the right hand so that the very events that were particular to the Messiah in Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, now we see are something that believers are actually participating and sharing in. So to some extent, what I'm talking about here is union with Christ or participation in the Messiah. And this is, this is a really critical feature of, in my argument, of how Paul conceptualizes what salvation is, how, we, uh, how Christ saves us. Um, so let me, let me stop there. I've gone on for a little bit, Jonathan. No, I, I was so good. Absolutely. So I think that's clear in the Pauline corpus and um, very helpful for us to see as we're kind of moving through the New Testament. So then if we landed then with the general epistles and revelation, did you find Messianic theology to play a substantial role in their presentation and explanation of Jesus? Yeah, I guess I could give you um, just a couple of quick examples. I mean, everybody knows Hebrews for its high priestly Christology. And of course, I have no interest whatsoever in denying something that's so obvious as that uh, in uh, in Hebrews. 
what sometimes I don't think is noticed, um, and, and there's a reason like why we emphasize that, you know, no other text refers to, uh, uh, to Jesus as, you know, a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Nobody has as much detail in terms of the cleansing. Uh, well, let me just put it in terms of the tabernacle and the temple cult. Um, but the author actually seems to be creative in making his argument about Christ's priestly identity in Hebrews because he's able to build upon and presume the fact that everyone knows and are, and would agree with his basic argument that Christ is first, in the first instance at least, I think he's building upon the traditional notion that Jesus is the exalted Davidic enthroned Messiah. And so what you get in the very beginning of Hebrews 1, 4 through 14, again, is basically what I would argue is an encomium or a praise of Jesus as he enters into heaven. And the father now is speaking all of these messianic designations to him. So he just, you know, flat out says, you know, second Samuel seven, um, in terms of applying the father son dynamic, right? He, uh, to him, he tells him, you are my firstborn son, messianic language from Psalm 89. Let all of the angels, right, worship him. He refers to his throne and his scepter of righteousness, another Davidic Psalm from Psalm 45. And then certainly Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until the enemies are a, thro- uh, a footstool for your feet. So the text, actually, Hebrews actually begins with the shared notion that I think would have been, hopefully, uh, I don't think would have been controversial for his audience, that Jesus is the resurrected, royal, enthroned Davidic Messiah who reigns in heaven. And then, the, and then he's able to build on that by basically reading four verses later, from Psalm 110.1 to Psalm 110.4, verse 4, and essentially say, if, obviously, I'm, this is my own Josh Jip kind of paraphrase of this, but if we all agree, the Lord said to my Lord, uh, sit at my right hand, Psalm 110.1, that he's the resurrected, enthroned, Davidic Lord at God's right hand, well, let's keep reading a few verses later. And what do we see in verse four? We see that he's also a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And we could uh, spell this out in even more detail elsewhere in Hebrews and uh, Hebrews eight, where he comes from the tribe of Judah and so forth. Uh, but the argument seems to be that if if you grant Psalm one ten one, then Psalm one ten four, the priesthood uh, bit needs to follow uh, as well. Um, with Revelation, I would say, yeah, we have. I mean, um, uh, we have an you know an amazing depiction of, uh, I'll just jump in at, uh, Revelation five, verse five and six, but we have, you know, messianic language being applied to Jesus. What John's, you know, weeping, right. And says, who's able to open the scroll. And he hears this messianic language texts from Isaiah 11 and Genesis 49, uh, that the lion from the tribe of Judah, right. Has conquered, has overcome, And then behold, you know, perhaps he sees then, however, that these messianic images are going to need to be interpreted by what he sees, which is a sacrificial and slain lamb that's sharing the throne uh, with Yahweh. So messianic military imagery, right, is being employed, but being reworked in such a way through the lens of the testimony witness 
and sacrificial life of Jesus. And that then sets into trajectory what is basically a messianic army or war throughout the book of Revelation, where the conquering Messiah has his own followers who essentially form an army and do battle with him and aren't passive, but their activity is found in nonviolence, in witnessing to the truth, in giving testimony to Jesus uh, and resisting idolatry rather than some of the traditional military weapons. And it's by that means, going back to some of the, um, some of your listeners no doubt will remember the, uh, uh, the promise that's given in all of this to all of the seven churches. It's by that means that they will conquer, that they will overcome and essentially share in uh, new life and resurrection life with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's one on Hebrews. There's one on Revelation for you, Jonathan. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Well, speaking of participation and what believers now do because of Jesus, I think that's a great way that we can kind of get into then the last part of this book in part two, where you then kind of put your exegetical findings in conversation with systematic theology and contemporary ethics. And you cover topics like scripture, Christology, soteriology, sanctification, and ecclesiology, and then politics, power, and eschatology. So in in a way to just overview this, I know there's a lot in there, so all our listeners should go and, and buy it and read this section carefully, but what are some ways that the conviction that Jesus is the Messiah then shapes theology and ethics? Yeah. So, you know, let me just start by saying, of course, it would be... <laughs> unnecessarily restrictive to say, let's write a systematic theology and just use messianic discourse in the New Testament to do so. There's no, there's no, there's no argument that I'm making that's saying, hey, here's, you know, systematic theology should just pay attention to this, as opposed to the whole richness of all of the images that were given uh, uh, of Christ throughout the New Testament. But it is my attempt to sort of say, you know, here's a heuristic exercise. Here actually is how indebted some of our dogmatic categories that we work with are to messianic language and messianic images. Um, and it's also an attempt to say, and, uh, you know, as some New Testament theologies have tried to done it, do in the past, not all of them have, have tried to do this. Some have stayed at the level of description but also to try to give an account of a New Testament theology that hopefully breathes some life into ethics and just actual trying to live and be faithful to the Messianic King. Um, I guess just to share with you one of them, one of, one of the main, you know, or of one conclusion, I suppose, uh, that I draw is that one of the ways the New Testament authors speak about sanctification or holiness or living under the reign of our messianic king, uh, and this is not necessarily incredibly controversial, but that we would be embodying the character of the Messiah in our churches and in our own individual lives. So, you know, I often teach this in my classes in such a way where I emphasize discipleship flows out of Christology. I mean, that just is a core theme from Matthew to Revelation. Disciples share in the same sufferings uh, of the Messiah. Um, disciples, just as the Messiah um, uh, counterintuitively and surprisingly 
uh, inaugurated God's kingdom by renouncing power and violence and coercion. In the same way, uh, followers of Jesus embody the character of the Messiah when they also are renouncing uh, status and power and instead are engaging in service uh, and so forth. Uh, in Matthew, um, disciples of Jesus embody Christ's character as they themselves are committed to the same kinds of practices of peace and mercy and forgiveness that make up the task of the messianic shepherd. So, and then I I guess I would say one other thing, maybe I'll just add one other thing that also was um, a fun insight for me throughout this book is seeing that the the New Testament so often emphasizes the Messiah's ongoing task as the resurrected, ascended, enthroned king in heaven, who's not just sort of like left this world to its own devices, but continues to be active. He's still someone that can be prayed to. He's still, the Messiah is still uh, working out his uh, uh, ministry by giving warnings and exhortations by um, empowering and inspiring our faith uh, um, to be present with us uh, at the the Lord's Supper. Um, And so the enthroned Messiah is a Messiah that um, really has a dynamic kingdom, not something that he started once and he'll come back and finish, but a kingdom that is... uh, uh, at work and operant within the world that we're living even now. Man, that is so, so great to kind of summarize, you know, not only the, the ways that the New Testament authors are presenting Jesus, but then to then connect that to our daily life, what discipleship looks like, Christian formation. And, you know, I'm just such a big fan to see um, biblical studies in conversation with systematic theology and, um, Really grateful for this book, Dr. Jip. Thank you for such a big accomplishment, big in terms of its impact and size. Um, and I just think all our listeners should go and grab this book. It's a, a very important and helpful New Testament theology. And um, yeah, I just can't recommend it enough. So before we go, Dr. Jip, would you mind sharing with us what some of your projects are on the horizon? Sure. Uh, I have two that I'm uh, working on still be a little while before I'm finished, but I'm writing, uh, um, basically a textbook on the gospels. And, uh, I, I've been excited. There, there's plenty of really good books on the gospels that I'm becoming, you know, that I, that I know that I knew about before. And I continue to know about as I'm writing my own, I, I, I'm trying to, you know, in addition to just sort of give a robust introduction to these texts, to, um, to also be able to, you know, transgress some of the boundaries between describing the text, but then also uh, uh, exhorting, encouraging, you know, ways that we might think about how we're supposed to actually also live the Gospels, and trying to give some key examples to how the church has actually uh, not just read the Gospels well, but lived the Gospels out. Um, so that's one. That's one project. And then I'm also uh, writing a little bit more of a technical work on Paul, um, and I don't I don't know exactly what the title will be, but it's basically a three way conversation between Paul, positive psychology, and ancient philosophy that centers upon the question of what is the supreme good 
what is the supreme good and what impact just spoiler alert for Paul, it's Christ. You know, what um, What impact does that have upon those uh, who who uh, who take the Supreme Good seriously for uh, for contemporary, you know, relevant topics such as emotions and friendship and suffering and death and things along those lines. So those are the two works I'm wow. spending most of my time on. Yeah. Well, that is exciting, and I uh, can't wait to, to see those as they come out. So to our listeners, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Take up and read.